Good morning, fellowship. <laughs> Welcome to our time of gathered worship. It's good to be with you here in person. It's good to be with you, with those of you who are joining us online. This morning, our call to worship comes from the book of Job, and these are Job's words as he speaks. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Would you stand and let's join our voices in singing to our immortal, our invisible, our only, all-wise God. with him, uh, engage in him in conversation. So we will do that this morning through a little bit of a unique prayer. We will uh, highlight one of the attributes of God in some written prayer, and then we will use a litany on the screen uh, where I will say something, oh God, you are our God, earnestly we seek you, and then you will respond with uh, our souls long for you, even as you pursue us. The words will be on the screen, but let's pray together. Eternal God, what is time to you? Before, after, during, you are. Our minds cannot comprehend your infinite state, and yet we try. We try to beat the clock, to race with time, to manage our day. 
We ask for patience, O God, to wait on you. O God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls long for you, even as you pursue us. All-knowing God, what do you not comprehend? You hold everything together, cradling us and knowledge of us in your hand. Forgive us for thinking that we can master you or fully understand you or even think we want to know what you know. We ask for modesty in our thoughts. O oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls long for you even as you pursue us. Mighty God, is there anything you cannot do? You are all-powerful, powerful enough to move the mountains, to create the galaxies, and to breathe life into our souls and speak to us. Forgive us for the times that we seek control of what is yours, for taking what is ours, for greedily grabbing for power, even when we are blind to what we are doing. O oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls long for you, even as you pursue us. Loving God, you made us in your image and created us for relationship, relationship with you and with one another. Your Son, Jesus Christ, embodies gracious love, endless mercy, heartfelt compassion, and yet we struggle to extend the same to others. Forgive us for thinking your love is to be saved and not shared. O oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls long for you, even as you pursue us. Creator God, your handiwork is so evident in the beauty of the world around us and in the human relationships we embody. Forgive us, Lord, for abusing the work of your hands for our obliviousness to the mystery of your creation and for taking advantage of the very relationships that bring us life. O oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls long for you, even as you pursue us. Triune God, your very being testifies to the relational connection you desire with humanity. The dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of contentment in one another joy with one another, and community for the other's sake. We yearn for that with you and with one another, and yet so often we turn our back, shift our focus, or engross ourselves in the mundane. Fix our focus on your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh for us and for our salvation, so that with joyful hearts we may follow him in obedience. O oh God, you are our God, Earnestly we seek you. Our souls long for you, even as you pursue us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. You were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most high.
brothers and sisters in Christ, it is because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we have peace with God and with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor and those in the chat to greet each other online. with you. My name is Tiara, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. I have a couple of things for us this morning. First, if you're new with us, if this is your first Sunday with us, or maybe you've been here for a few weeks and you're ready to connect with us as a community, I uh, would strongly encourage you to um, fill out a connection card, take it over to the welcome desk. There's some great folks over there who would love to meet you. They'd love to greet you by name um, and help you to get to know a little bit more of who we are as a church. Uh, four announcements. Um, so first... Pat Vorpagel, our new um, care coordinator here at Fellowship, is looking for folks to um, join the um, join kind of a, a group of volunteers who make meals um, when needs arise within our community. Um, essentially, the sign-up process is easy. You just join the mob of people who are willing to make meals, and then when a need comes up, um, you get to sign up for the ones that you're available to make and contribute to people. Uh, so see Pat Vorpagel if you're interested in doing that. Uh, Betsy Bruins, our Kids and Families Director here, uh, is looking for Sunday school teachers and assistants who can serve on a biweekly basis um, in Sunday school, uh, specifically two adult leaders and two assistants for the 9 a.m. service uh, and four assistants total for the 10.30 a.m. service. So if you're interested, you have more questions, you can see Betsy Bruins. She'd love to um, give you more details about that. Uh, our middle school ministry, Elevate, is looking for a few more leaders for our Wednesday night gatherings. Um, in case you don't know, our Wednesday night gathering uh, with middle school ministry is kind of where we work on belonging and connection. So if you are looking to kind of dip your toe into middle school ministry, but you're not sure you're ready for the responsibility of teaching just yet, uh, you get to just come and have fun with young people and just be there in the room with some of the other leaders. So uh, you can see Hannah Cochran if you're interested in that. Uh, finally, um, <laughs> Meet Up and Eat Up is coming up this week. Um, due to some unforeseen circumstances, Meet Up and Eat Up will only be this coming week. So um, if you're still looking for a chance to hop into this experience, this week is the week to do so, and you can connect with Karen Donker for that. Um, Last thing, um, we are so incredibly grateful for your generosity to Fellowship Church and all of the ways that you um, support not only our, our ministry here, um, but also local and global ministries, um, local and global missions through your generosity. So thank you. Um, and if you have not yet partnered with us financially, um, there's a couple of ways that you can do that either online or through the giving bowls in the back of the sanctuary. And with that, oh, and we're going to just... Six announcements. We're going to dismiss kids three years to first grade. Um, you can go with Miss Betsy, who is actually standing in the back of the room. And for the rest of you, um, you can stand to continue singing with us. What is our home in life and 
morning, church. The Lord be with you. Let's pray together. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. We pray now that you would meet us at this moment right smack in the middle, a moment of life and laughter, of doubt and despair, and of hope in the midst of hardship. Day by day, Please remind us that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, which means that I am not, and we are not. Instead, you are God, even if we are confused, and even when we don't understand. It is oh so good that you are God and we are not. So give us grace to know our place and to trust you with our whole life throughout all of our days. And all God's people said, amen. Well, friends, today we turn to a book of the Bible that just might have more questions in it than any other. Too many to count. We are in a series called A Questionable Life, and the question of the week this week is the question that God asks of Job, and by extension, of all humanity. The question is this. Who darkens counsel with words that lack wisdom? I wonder if you'll begin with me by marveling at some of the things that religious folk have said throughout the years. In the Middle Ages, when the bubonic plague ravaged planet Earth, the dominant Christian interpretation at the time was that the plague, the pestilence, was God's punishment on sinful humanity. Really? On September 11, 2001, when terror struck New York City and the Pentagon, again, it was interpreted by people of various religions as God's judgment on America and on Americans, and particularly on bad people for doing bad things. Really? In the year 2004, a major tsunami struck South Asia. It was utterly devastating. 
a prominent Christian leader, teacher, preacher, author, stood up and declared publicly at a Christian conversation, at a Christian conference, that they deserved it. And God did it because that was particularly a place known for persecuting Christians. Really? Even today, in the tear-stained journal pages of someone, anyone, who just received the terrible news of cancer, a miscarriage, a job loss, or some other hurtful thing, the words are often written, what did I do, oh God, to deserve this? Really? The question of God in the book of Job is worth hearing again. Who is this that darkens counsel with words that lack wisdom? In context, God asks that question of Job after he and his, and his friends have run their mouths for 30 plus chapters straight. Some terrible things have happened, particularly to Job. And so each of them then takes turns theologizing and theorizing about what's happened and why. Finally, in the 38th chapter, God speaks up and God speaks fittingly from in the midst of a whirlwind. So buckle your seatbelts as we hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love, a smattering of verses from Job chapter 38 through 40, where it says this. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel with words that lack wisdom? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Do you know where wind comes from? What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Do you know where the mountain goat gives birth? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Do you give the horse its strength? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? God carries on like this for a full three chapters, mentioning Bohemoth and Leviathan and the storehouses of snow, altogether asking Job if he is able to create and understand and sustain the entire universe. And eventually God says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and majesty, then I myself will admit to you that you are able to save yourself. Then in chapter 40, verse 1, the Lord says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let the one who argues with God now answer. And Job says to the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God. Do you remember the story of Job? 
The book itself is 42 chapters long, but the storyline is front-loaded and end-loaded. In the first chapter, we find that Job is one of the very few characters in the Bible described by God as blameless. But then, after a very uncomfortable conversation in the heavenlies, in the divine council, the bottom falls out for Job. He loses everything. First his wealth, then his family, then his own health. His friends, his three friends, come to him to comfort him. And for the first seven days, they just sit there in silence. That's them at their best. Then they start to talk. That's them at their worst. For 34 chapters straight, they offer their platitudes, explaining what God is up to in Job's life and what he therefore must do about it. In turn, Job cries out to God. He laments his own birth, defends his innocence, and asks a myriad of questions. At the end of the story, God finally speaks. All humanity is put in its place, and Job is honored or vindicated. I remember years ago, sitting in a classroom at Hope College, learning from my mentor, Alan Verhey, about the book of Job, and it struck me that Job just might be the only book in the Bible that has a large chunk right in the middle of it that is not so scripture-y. Why? Because the book ends with God discrediting all of the wisdom of Job's not-so-comforting friends. Therefore, we should beware of anyone who opens the book to, say, Job 25 and takes that to be gospel truth. That's where Bildad the Shuhite is talking. Shortest man in the Bible, by the way, Bildad the Shuhite. Ah, uh, <laughs> come on. But Bildad is talking there, and Bildad is counted among those who are ultimately declared wrong by God in chapter 42. So, so when Bildad says in chapter 25 that man is like a worm, God ultimately disagrees. The book of Job then serves us as a great reminder that in the Bible, context triumphs over proof texting. The book is complex, to say the least. And yet, ever since the book of Job was written, people throughout generations have looked to it for wisdom, and especially in hard times. Today, I'd like to suggest that the book of Job is about three things. It's about theodicy. It's about theophany, and it's about mystery. We'll take them one at a time, even as we will ultimately solve or master none of them. Theodicy. Theodicy is a big church word that basically means the justice of God. By definition, theodicy seeks to affirm God's power and goodness even in a world of suffering and evil. You're already reading my cartoon. I can see you. So a man approaches the help desk at the shopping mall and he says, if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, why do bad things happen? And the lady replies, sir, this is an improper use of the shopping mall information desk. Even still, humanity has had no shortage of attempts at answering the question. I'll survey a few of them for you. One answer, I'm going to put them on display one answer that comes from pop culture and world religions is karma. 
Karma says you get what you deserve. Now, to be clear, karma is not Christian orthodoxy, okay? Karma simply says that if you do good, you will get good, and if you do bad, you will get bad. It is a very mechanical way of understanding the world, kind of like pulling a lever. It's automatic. It's the idea that stands behind reincarnation, which is also not Christian doctrine, by the way. But reincarnation would say that if I'm a bad human, I might end up in the next life as a cow. And if I'm a bad cow, I might end up then after that a snake. But if I'm a good snake, I might become a family puppy or something like that. This is karma, right? And it is saying that do good, you will get good. Do bad and you will get bad. It's automatic. And I think that humanity at large has liked this idea because it puts us in the driver's seat of life. At least we're in control, right? If karma is true, no one else controls my destiny. It's me in the driver's seat. A second option that has been suggested throughout the world that is perhaps a little less automatic and more biblical is what you might call conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom simply says it's better to be good. Unlike karma, it is not so mechanical. Conventional wisdom is really based a bit more on a law of averages that, that trust the natural order or the natural law built into the universe. And so it says that seek the good things because life is better with the good things and avoid the bad things because they are ultimately harmful. We teach this stuff to our children and Psalm 1 is the flagship text for it. Blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. They're like a tree that is flourishing because it's doing the good things, not so the wicked. That's conventional wisdom. And so it would say, be a good neighbor, because then your neighbors will be a little more likely to be good back to you. And by the way, avoid hitting your hand with a hammer. It's a bad choice. There's natural consequences. It hurts. So don't do that alongside a lot of other harmful things that are best if you avoid them. Conventional wisdom. A third category that is far too popular is one that I'm calling backwards philosophy. Backwards philosophy, way too many people believe this. Job's friends name it all too confidently. Backwards philosophy takes karma and conventional wisdom and inverts it. It basically says that if you are experiencing something good, it's because you earned it. And if you experience something bad, it's because you deserve it. It's like those examples I gave to you at the opening that's backwards philosophy. And then we have the book of Job, which is the Bible's counterpoint. It is an instance in which we have all of our favorite philosophies that have been named already kind of called on the carpet, not so fast. In Job, God responds to the theories and the theologies of this world. And God says, who is this that darkens counsel with words that lack wisdom. It's a different way of understanding. Now, to be fair, there are more and better Christian theodicies. There's the free will theodicy. There's the world at war theodicy. There's the soul-making theodicy. There's the God as co-sufferer theodicy. I would love to talk more about these. They're fascinating and important. But importantly, in 
in the book of Job, the theodicy question is not answered. It's left unanswered. A thousand theories are offered, and a myriad, a superabundance of questions are asked. But God's response is not a philosophy. It's not a theology. It's not a one-size-fits-all explanation to all the trouble in the world. God's response to theodicy is theophany, which is the next big church word of the day. Theophany basically means God appearance, kind of like the burning bush in Exodus. It's a God appearance, and in Job's case, God appears in a whirlwind. A few things worth noticing about the theophany, the God appearance, in the book of Job. First of all, I hope you noticed the mood. I'm not sure how you received it when we read the text together this morning, but when I read it, what comes to mind for me is a scene from the movie Back to the Future, where Marty McFly is standing in front of the largest speaker in the world and the super amplifiers behind it, and he dares to strum the guitar. Take a look. That's great theology right there. <laughs> Doesn't the story read a little bit like that, though? I think so. Marty McFly apparently didn't brace himself like a man quite enough in order to take that. When we read the story, some people think that God sounds angry. I wonder a little differently. I wonder if God is just being true to God's self. And God's real presence is overwhelming when God appears, humans are suddenly and shockingly put in our place. It's not mean-spirited. It's just honest. It's a powerful experience of God's otherness drawing near, and we are sort of blown back by it. That's the mood. But notice, second, the context that happens in this theophany. To our surprise and to Job's as well, God does not enter into a philosophical debate in order to defend his justice. God mostly just asks questions. Eighty of them, according to my count, in the short three chapters there. And God's questions and comments fall into two categories. First, God is basically saying, Hey, Job, where were you when the world was made? And second, dear friend Job, do you have any idea how to uphold the entire universe? Job is left a little bit like in response to what God has said to him. Rhetorically, he is realizing, well, um, God, no, I actually have not been to the bottom of the ocean. And yes, I am only so-and-so years old against the backdrop of eternity. And, well, to be honest, I can hardly hold my own life together. So final answer, no, I cannot run the universe. Thank you very much. That's Job's kind of response there. And the effect of God's speech in this particular moment to Job and even to us is to help us stop staring at our own two feet. That's what I do when hardship happens in my life. I live like this. And to be sure, terrible things have happened to Job. Things that we would wish happened to no one, ourselves for sure. 
And God's response is not a little comforting hug. God does that elsewhere. But in this particular instance, God's comfort to Job is an invitation to look up and to look around, to zoom out on life as our worship team recognized as we studied this text together this week. We're invited to consider the grand scheme of things and to remember that God holds the whole world in his hands and therefore God is also trustworthy to hold mine. In response, Job puts his hand over his mouth and retracts his complaint. God offers no explanation as to why the bad things have happened to Job. God just shows up and gives his presence and Job is satisfied. When the big God finally shows up in theophany, not the small God that has been explained and captured by Job's friends, when the big God shows up, everything changes. It reminds me of the story of N.T. Wright early in his ministry, one of the most prominent biblical scholars of our day. When N.T. Wright was serving as a chaplain at a college, he would walk around campus and encounter students who would act kindly towards him, but eventually they would say, well, Pastor, you're not going to see me very much in worship. I don't believe in God, they would say. And N.T. Wright would respond by saying, oh, that's interesting. And which God is it that you don't believe in? And they would go on to give a kind of cultural understanding of who God is. And N.T. Wright would say back, I don't believe in that God either. The moral of the story is that sometimes the popular opinion of God is just plain wrong. When Job meets the real God in theophany, it is enough. Fellowship and trust take over and Job lets go of all of his questions. Which brings us to the last word of the day, a simple one, mystery. Mystery is a word that simply speaks of the things that are difficult to explain, the things that are beyond us, kind of like outer space or almighty God things that we might know a little bit about, but we are liars if we say that we know all things. One of the effects of the book Job has on me is that it invites me into mystery. Think again about how the book ends. Job's friends, the ones who were so certain that they were right, they are the ones declared wrong by God. Job, the one who keeps seeking God with questions and refusing to accept trite answers, Job is the one that is affirmed by God. The friends, as far as I can tell, don't talk to God. They simply run their mouths to each other about God and about Job. Job cries out to God. I think he's the only one that prays in the whole book. And finally, Job accepts mystery and lets God be God. I love how one Christian author has said it recently. He said, what we need today is transformed people, not just people with answers. Explanation separates us from astonishment. Like Job, we need to prioritize again transformation over information and a humble seeking stance instead of being stuck in certainty. So I invite you to consider with me a couple examples from the New Testament. In John chapter 9, Jesus is there 
and he's with a man born blind. And the people around him ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither, but stay alert, for God is still up to something good in this world. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus is again asked about the victims of a political scandal and a natural disaster. Did these people die because they were worse sinners than everyone else, they ask? And Jesus says, no, but pay attention, for God is yet still up to something in the world. In Acts chapter 11, the early church is gathered, the disciples of Jesus, and a prophet stands up and predicts a famine. In that moment, the disciples do not get busy trying to theologize about what God is up to in the midst of this famine or whose fault it might be. They simply get busy being a part of the solution in the world. And in Philemon, chapter one, verse 15, when a runaway slave returns home, the apostle Paul says to the slave owner, perhaps, perhaps this has happened so that you might have him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Perhaps and might, he says. Paul does not declare exactly what God must be up to. He accepts the mystery of God's ways and suggests a faithful response. In each of these cases and others, we see Jesus, the early church, and the apostle Paul actively avoiding speculation about why a certain thing has happened. And instead, they move towards some kind of faithful response to whatever has happened in the world. At the end of chapter 42, in the book of Job, it concludes with Job having encountered God. He puts his hand over his mouth. He stops talking, and he starts trusting. It's a vivid reminder that just when we think we've got God all figured out, that might be the very moment in which we could be most sure that we don't. I'm thinking now of Thomas Aquinas, another towering figure in the Christian tradition. He's a prolific Christian writer, but at the end of his life, he had a profound mystical experience at the Lord's table. And afterwards, from that moment on, he ceased from all of his theological labors. When asked why, he said, all that I have written now seems like straw in comparison to what I have seen. That's remarkably Job-like. See chapter 42. So friends, be warned. Whoever you think God is, you're probably thinking too small. For just when we think that we've got God and life all figured out, God shows up in a whirlwind. God's otherness draws near and says, who is this that darkens counsel with words that lack wisdom? Today's text takes us from theodicy to theophany and into mystery, and we are invited to forgo our need for explanation. We're invited instead to embrace the experience of God in the whirlwind, which reminds us that I am not God. You are not God. Only God is God, and no one on earth fully understands God. God's otherness overwhelms us. God's ways are beyond us, and yet God's rule over us is trustworthy. 
Who are we to think otherwise? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, the book of Job is the story of a blameless man who suffers greatly. 
throughout the book and even without answers, Job recurringly offers a faithful response in the midst of his hardship. He raises a hallelujah. In chapter one, even after all the terrible things have happened, Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In chapter 13, he says of God, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And in chapter 19, when his friends have become his enemies, Job simply says, I know that my Redeemer lives. So friends, I invite you to join hearts with Job and to raise a hallelujah even in the midst of all of our life storms. Let's stand and sing together.
book of Job puts us in our place, and that is a very good thing. As you go from this place to live under its truth, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.